Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and production, digital production. And our second hour is something that we tend to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be speaking with Coach Bryn Drescher, performance coach coach and mindset coach. So go ahead, producers, and submit your questions early so that we can get to them. And speaking of questions, Jason, let's get into them. Got it. Aaron Jenkerly from Flagstaff, Arizona, writes in, used a fiber HDMI cable for the first time with a Blackmagic 6K Pro and the camera froze up, then had to be powered down to work again, run, wondering if anyone else has run across this issue. Alex? Yeah, we, we haven't uh, run around that specific issue. We have had to turn cameras on and off again when using these uh, HDMI fibers, uh, and they haven't been the most stable thing to use. I mean, once they get running, they seem to be running fine. We just used them last week in that coverage of the generative AI, and um, and they they work pretty well. They're single directional. Uh, again, the the Blackmagic cameras seem to not be a hundred percent happy with them, uh, with, with whatever's going on there, and it may be the the kind of the low bandwidth return that it's getting back, maybe causing some issues. I do think that you're better off, generally, if possible, to use the bi-directionals on both ends if you're trying to extend that out. Um, I, you know, rather than using the fiber, um, I think you're going to be better off uh, in the long term. Uh, using something that uh, the the these kind of specialty cables, I think, are problematic. Courtney, uh, I was a question for Alex because I haven't used these optical fibers. Do they uh, support EDID or the the communication line that goes the other direction? Yeah, there's a very small direction. amount. There's just enough return to do the EDID. Uh, the problem really is is that it's a very very constrained return, and um, and so it's you know because they're not really two way, and we we have seen some some the black magics have some interesting you know like they don't i think they expect to have more data going back and forth than what they're getting and um it seems to be making them less stable again we got them working but there there was a little bit of wonkiness of unplugging and plugging them back in turning them turning things on to get it going but once it was going it, it kept going but but i i uh i mean and there was some like limited control that seemed to happen as well so I, I, it's not something that I would use in a pipeline after my experience last week. Are they? I think they're they they great to have them, but I don't are they really HDCP compliant or not? They are. Yeah, they are. Okay. Next yeah. question. Andy Kokendorfer writes in from Vieira, Florida. Thoughts on Adobe Firefly better than Midjourney? John. This is a great question, and I'm seeing a battle uh, line up here. So this is really interesting because. Both both Midjourney and Stable Diffusion have have built their models significantly on stuff that's available on the web. Adobe and Getty Images are using their own licensed content to build their models, so their models aren't as large as what we've got at Midjourney. And the genie's kind of out of the bottle. The stuff coming out of Firefly is not as good as Midjourney is right now, and so it's going to be an interesting battle moving forward. Alex. Yeah, the, the the advantage of Firefly is that it is uh, it, it that it probably is less legally encumbered because of the licensing with Getty and how they're working it out. The downside is it's probably one tenth as good as Midjourney. 
so, so it, like you just don't, I played with it a little bit and I was like, oh, this isn't even close. Like I would never use this. Like I would never, you know, I use Midjourney every single day to build little things and, and even just to entertain myself. <laughs> but, but, but the, uh, but the, the, the Adobe product, I, I think it's great that they're going down this path and maybe it'll get better, but it's not even close right now. Next question. Paul Terry Walhus from Austin, Texas writes in, what is the most effective purely web-based video editor? Go ahead, Bill. It's going to be 100% dependent on the kind of footage you have to work with. When you say a video editor and you say web-based, there's not a lot that a professional editor would rely on to do everything on the web. There are uh, beginning processes that allow you to store footage up there. Most of the time, people download them onto local hard drives and things like that. I will say, if you're interested in the lightweight uh, Agile little editors, things like CapCut that a lot of gamers use can do a pretty good job of basic editing. But when you get into the big applications, the Final Cuts, the Premieres, the uh, Avids, most people do not rely on anything that is online. You always want to keep your footage local whenever you can so that you have instant access to it because editing is all about getting into a creative flow. Go ahead, Alex. CapCut, I think, is still local, right? It's not. That's not a web-based editor. It's just a. It's a mobile-based editor. So yeah, yeah. Um, and so there's there's also Enlightened by you know there, that, that's out there that some um, of the TikTokers use. Uh, there's the the native app. Uh, iMovie is re remarkably popular <laughs> inside of that, uh, as well as and the the most popular one we see among social media editors is oftentimes uh, Final Cut. Um, because they're not getting paid by the hour. <laughs> you know, like they, 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 they need to get it done quickly. So you see Final Cut is pretty heavy unless they're trying to be like the film guys, you know, and then they, and then they go to Premiere or, or Resolve is also, Resolve's growing really quickly. As far as web-based editors, probably the best one, you didn't give us a price, you didn't say the most cost-effective, uh, is Blackbird. So Blackbird is a, is a digital audio management as well as an editing package. You can stream straight to it. You can be cutting, uh, edit, you can be editing video while while it's still streaming to the platform, you can have huge numbers of people work on it. This is the, that's the big guns, you know. So if you look at Blackbird, that's the um, that's the one that. Uh, but you have to, you know, it's it's a it's a lot of money, <laughs> like tens of thousands of dollars, you know, to start with, uh, and you're and you're talking about building an AWS instance to uh, support it. But it is web based for the folks that are um, interacting with it. So there, that's a. Uh, now, that's the most effective, um, maybe not the most cost-effective. Next question. Chirag Chahita from Dallas, Texas writes in, we had a major audio loss during a live show last week using vMix and DeckLink output. vMix says it is a known issue and may stop recommending DeckLink cards. Any recommendations for alternatives to the DeckLink cards? Alex? Uh, AJA is probably the one that you probably want to look at first. Osprey is another one that you may want to look at there. And there's also, I believe, Bluefish are the, are the ones that, those are the ones that we would typically see uh, if we weren't using a DeckLink card. But almost everybody uses a DeckLink card. Uh, VMix saying that a DeckLink card, a DeckLink card isn't working for them is just lazy programming. Like, like I'm just saying that that is, that makes me worried about the entire piece of software. Like it, a DeckLink card is the core of so many different pieces of hardware and software for them to say that this is a known issue that they can't that they can't solve the, the thing that everybody else has solved it means that they have some kind of spaghetti code hidden somewhere that they don't want to fix like that that is just it's uh, i literally it scares me to use vmix if they say they can't get a deck link card to work uh yeah it's crazy next question 
Damiel Nordvik from Norway writes in, thoughts on NVIDIA's AI upscaling of video playback. Courtney. I looked at a couple of the demos of the uh, 4K to 8K uh, upscaling. Of course, I don't have an 8K uh, monitor to look at it on, so it's kind of hard to judge because my, although I have a recent Samsung monitor, the 4K, uh, it looked really great. There was a lot of detail. It picked up a lot of detail, and it does more than just edge sharpening. Uh, the AI works, you know, pretty well in in emulating what is there, only sharper. <laughs> and it made text, small text, look a lot clearer. Uh, so it, it did a pretty good job. I was pretty impressed. And and so what and is it? Time. Just making sure, just understanding that it's creating a better image. So if you had a 720, you can turn it into a 4K. Is that what? Yes. Uh huh. Okay. It, well, 720s. Yeah, or it'll get a bit which... sharper. It, it it increases sharpness and and detail. Uh, in going from 720 to 4K or 720 to 1080 or 1080 to 4K or 1080 to 8K. Uh, so it, it does a pretty good job in, in increasing the resolution without having to, uh, you know, invest in the hardware to capture it in that resolution to begin with. So, Alex? Yeah, I could... I felt like I could see the difference. I mean, I looked at, the, at that video and I very quickly, I, don't, I wouldn't have been fooled <laughs> by any of it. You can't make something from nothing. So, um, you know, I think that upscaling is great. We see a lot of it in TVs. I don't, I didn't see that the AI, I didn't feel like the NVIDIA upscaling was any better than what ships with every TV that comes out that's 4K right now. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writing in with, with Waves going subscription only, I'm thinking more strongly about migrating to Dante for low latency music production. Would DVS be enough or do I need a DME Digiface Dante or similar Thunderbolt interface? Alex? You need something with the Dante chip in the system. Like that's the, that's the big trick is that something has to have a Dante chip in it. Um, you, you can't, uh, doing DVS by itself, uh, is is a recipe for disaster. So it, it doesn't it doesn't clock well, um, and so you definitely want some kind of interface that you're going to use to get to get in and out. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Uh, Bob Sturdevant from Nairobi, Kenya, writing in panel recommendations on software to automatically divide video file sizes to not exceed a certain file size, so I can upload drone footage to my Smugbunk account. Mac preferred. Go ahead, Jason. I would be inclined to recommend Hedge. I'm pretty sure Hedge can do this. Long time, uh, way back when second hour panelist uh, came on, a, a Dutch guy, and, and told us all about Hedge, and I was impressed. Bill? Yeah, Hedge is one of the tools that I've worked with. Um, this is an interesting thing, and I'm having a little trouble parsing the question because you're saying you want to divide the video file sizes to not exceed. Now, that could mean you want to compress things to allow for easier upload. It could also mean you want to do what um, the transverse module in uh, Frame.io was kind of pioneering with, which is to take a BitTorrent type approach, take a big video file, packetize it, and parallel send up those packets and assemble them at the other end. That may, that may That's a very good process for getting a large amount of data up to the cloud as quick as possible and down from the cloud as quick as possible. But the other processes, if you're just looking to, to uh, compact a file 
and not have too much effort on it, things like compressor will allow you to take video files and make them small enough without over compressing them if you're careful about how you use them so that the file size is smaller for the actual up and download. Next question. Paul Terry Wall, who's from Austin, Texas, writing in, what creative things can you do with videos in Canva? I can jump in on this one. You can pretty you can do a lot with Canva. And I don't know how many people got a chance to watch Canva create last week, but they're just coming for everyone. <laughs> they're trying to be all things for creatives and those that may not necessarily have the technical skills to be able to drag and drop. They have a plethora of templates. So for our community, things like um, timers, things like at the beginning of a, a Zoom session, maybe a countdown clock that will help or a presentation or animation taking place um, in the midst of this. A lot of social media managers and marketing directors use them for to help you to create reels if you don't necessarily want to be on camera, but you want to create things like audiograms so you can do that in, in Canva. So really, it's a matter of understanding Canva and the workflow to get that visual out there. So yes, there's a lot that you can do with Canva. So we also have a Canva lab with David Paskin, so you can learn more there. Next question. Bias Moss from Minneapolis writes in, in your career, what's been the most surprisingly lucrative set of opportunities you've pursued? Bill. Well, since you say in your career, it goes back a long ways. I was shocked. I was starting to do some voiceover work early in my career, and then I fell into something that changed my entire attitude toward it. Uh, I had been doing some local stuff in Phoenix where I grew up. And uh, somebody asked me to come in. They needed a younger voice, and I was in, my, I think, my mid-20s at the time, to go along with the traditional old announcer for a TV station that was about to try to get a ratings boost. Long story short, they had about 20 spots, and we did them over three days in the studio. And I was thinking, boy, this is probably a good gig. They were a union signatory. So it turns out when they told me what I was going to make, I was shocked I mean, it was like $5,000, which back in those days was a lot of money. And then they called me a week later and said they've decided to take these same voiceover snippets and double them onto TV. <laughs> and so without doing anything, that kicked it up to, I think it was twelve dollars to $15,000. Back then in the mid-80s, that was a ton of money. And that was the last job I ever worked for somebody else. I actually went out on my own after that because I had that much funding behind me. So... For me, it was that. That industry has changed, and it's much, 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 much harder to have find those kind of gigs than it was back in my early days of things. But in terms of pure effort put out versus return, that's probably the most lucrative thing I've ever singularly done. Go ahead, Alex. Uh, I, I was on tech TV for a while and, and every week I would, you know, would say, hey, if you want to see a longer version of this. So what, but what I basically did is I was on, uh, I'd be on for every Wednesday with Leah Laporte and I would, um, do some little tip that took that, that I maybe did in three minutes. And then I would uh, say there's a 20 minute version on site on, on, on my website. And there's a, a PDF that'll help you walk through it. If, if, the, if this didn't make sense. And I got about a thousand emails a, a week you know, coming in, you know, doing that. And, uh, and it was just kind of clipping along and people kept on sending me emails going, can you do a Photoshop training? And I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many Photoshop trainings. There's the, you know, there's, there's all these people that are doing videos and there's a whole section in Borders Bookstore. There used to be a bookstore called Borders Bookstore. And they had a whole section just on Photoshop. And I was like, there's no reason to have more training. And 
and people just kept on I'd get, you know, a couple emails a day on it. And so I was like, fine. And so I sat down in one day and and just walked through Photoshop in about two and a half hours of the things that I thought you needed to know. I mean, I laid out a couple of things the day before. And then I just sat down and, and I literally got like the slice tool. I came to the slice tool and I said, see this tool? I have no idea what that tool does. Um, and you probably don't need to know it now because I've been using this product for 10 years. And and so then I just kept on going. And so it was a very like high attitude, just kind of like, I'm going to show you how to, look, I use Photoshop every day. This is what you need to know about Photoshop. This isn't the nine hours or 18 hours of Photoshop. This is the two and a half hours that you need um, to get off the ground and, and understand how the product works. And I sold it, I think I sold it for, it was a CDs, you know, we didn't have bandwidth and so on and so forth. And I put it out and it made about $70,000 in the first two days. And, um, and, uh, and then it continued to make money uh, at a clip of about $5,000 a month uh, for about five years. <laughs> Like, like it just kept on this and a lot because I did another one the next month. It was like, how to do alpha channels. And I did the same thing. Like, oh, this is how you do this. And it was very, you know, you know, uh, and somebody else edited it. it. It was like in the, in the company, like, and, and so it was about three or four days of work that generated probably a million dollars for the company. Um, of, it didn't make me any money, <laughs> but it made about a million dollars for the company and kept us afloat. And we were able to do pixel core because of these products that we're putting out. So I, I, I don't know if it was lucrative for me, but it definitely got everything else going. And we, you know, it, it, it was just a, an amazing thing. But when you provide service for a long time and you have something, you, you, I think that what we make, we think that once something's out there, it's just out there and that's the only one that needs to exist. And unless someone did it perfectly uh, and, and you don't have, but if you have a different way, different take on it, my take was, I don't, I don't like watching videos about how to learn. I want you to be, people have to get to the point really quickly. Um, then, uh, you know, that was a style that some, at least some people liked. And how long ago was that? Oh man, it's 20, 20 years ago, probably 20, maybe Photoshop 21. Photoshop have layers yet. It did have layers. <laughs> like, I, I showed you how to use layers. It had, you know, uh, yeah, so it was, it was, uh, it was probably Photoshop 6, I think, was Photoshop 5, 5 or 6 um, was the one that I was teaching or that I, that I did it about. And, um, but yeah, it was, it, it, uh, you know, solving little problems, I think, is the in most interesting thing. Like we, the, the other one I'll just say real quickly is that, you know, the keying in Final Cut was horrible and we decided to build a plugin for it called DV Matte. Um, and it was just a, a kid that I, at the time, a kid, he's now a director at IDEO or something like that, but he's, but he was, he written this little keyer and we made it, you know, we, we collaborated to make, put some more dials into it and put it out there. And it was another thing where it's a little 128 bit program, like a 120 kilobit, 128 kilobit program, uh, that made about $30,000 a month for about eight years. And it, uh, we didn't even have any. Uh, license protection like we 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 gave you a serial number but it didn't matter because <laughs> i was like this is too much trouble to write that <laughs> like I, I don't care and um and so uh so it was and until apple until os 10 came until final cut 10 came out it was just printing money you know and and, and we didn't even see it it just it, it was all automated when you bought it so we didn't it just was money that went got put into the account so it was uh so anyway so those are those are some <laughs> some good ones that all went to the funded pixel core you know that's what that's what funded pixel core was all those crazy products go ahead courtney well, i've had a couple of a uh, couple of things that have affected where my career has taken jags left and right uh once working as a production sound mixer uh on a movie um they had hired a company to do graphics of there was supposed to be this uh, these seismologists, these uh, size meters that were detecting people crossing the border, and so there was all these computer displays listed in the in the script. 
And uh, so they hired a company to do that, and they they showed up in, in the pre-production meeting with it, and, and I looked at it, and my friends looked at it, and they went, ooh, this doesn't really look very good. It's just character-based graphics, and there was a whole story points that take place on the screen where this thing is showing this big shootout that happens at the end. And and I had been writing software just as a hobby up to that point for the for Atari, and uh I said, you know, I think I let me give this a shot. And I was a production mixer in the movie, but um, I went ahead and took on that project, and so I did all the graphics in the film. So that gave me a uh, input to twenty-four frame playback, and also to doing uh, commercial uh, graphics software on the Atari. And later, uh, so I, later in my career, I did that twenty-four frame playback, which was a very limited field and very lucrative because there were only about twelve people in Hollywood that know how to do that. And so you could pretty much name your own price. So that was pretty lucrative. And also, uh, while working on a commercial as a production sound mixer, uh, we noticed that the teleprompter, which was an old mechanical teleprompter, which had paper on it and scrolls of paper going back and forth, was making a lot of noise and was really upsetting me. And I talked to the prompter operator and I said, you know, does anybody have a computer-based teleprompter? Because computers were in their infancy, the infancy. This was 1981, and so uh, he said, "No, no, computers could never do this." So I, I took that as a challenge, and uh, wrote the first computer-based teleprompter called CompuPrompt, which that that Emmy over my shoulder is for the Scientific and Tele- Technology Emmy for creating CompuPrompt, and that big. Be- went on to become a company with uh, locations in five different countries and teleprompting service company. So that turned out pretty good for a little invention that I did. And so, you know, I've I've had a number of, of zigzags in my career just out of happenstance of writing something or creating something that I thought would solve a problem, you know, for me, a lot of times just for me. And just a reminder to our producers, this is a great time for you to go ahead and submit your questions for our panelists just before we get into the top of the hour. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, Curious. Courtney, do you know Jopchi from the Bay Area, Magic Scroll? Yes, I know Magic Scroll and Jopchi. All right. Runs the Mac so, the Mac software. Right. So I've in, I've invented nothing. I've never sold any tutorials. I'm a loser and all of that. But I will say this uh, as a bit of um, advice. There are times in this business, especially as you get to be a little older, there's times in this business where you can get frustrated with people. And you can uh, we had a a thing that happened about um, it was probably about 7 or 8 years ago where we got a phone call and it was somebody who was completely green. They needed help. Uh, they needed um, some assistance, and they needed it quickly. And then we decided we couldn't do it that day, but maybe the next day. And then they, and it was just a nightmare. And Paul uh, at Slice was fed up. He's like, "I'm done with these people. They don't know what they're doing." And I said, "Calm down. Everybody is new once." Just help them get over the hump. That calming of Paul um, turned into somewhere over 900 real estate videos that we've done for this company. 900 home tours. And he was literally this close from going, "Ah, I don't want anything to do with this. And so um, 
When it comes to lucrative opportunities, sometimes they're right in front of you and you just have to take a breath and kind of uh, get over that frustration. Uh, it's turned into be a great client. Uh, turns out uh, Paul and the owners of the comp- that company are great friends and um, I-, I don't do much of it, but uh, it was just being in the right frame of mind at the right moment. So calm down, take the job. And smile. Jason. Fenwick's changed my mind. I was going to tell a, a really techie, just kind of neat story that I did with, with the client years ago, but I'm going to follow his up with, with a little bit of a similar story. About eight or nine years ago, I went to exactly one bridal expo uh, as a business owner for a friend of mine, basically just to help the guy. And a brand new wedding photographer came up to me and said, thank you for speaking. I talked for 10 minutes, don't remember what I said. And I, I'll, I really want your card because at some point I'm going to be, I'm, I'm really going to be at the top of this game. And it was eight or nine years later, but it turned into 30 grand in business. So there you have it. Never, never say no to somebody because they say they're new. And... I'm going to follow that with Chris. I wasn't going to say anything, but then when you mentioned the like solving a problem, essentially, and I think it was maybe like similarly eight or nine years ago, I do a lot of work in the startup community with founders and different incubators. And because we were located in one of these locations, they asked us, they were doing this pitch competition and they asked us to come in and produce like a, what we'll say is like a red carpet and just interviewing and talking. So we did that part live, integrated that with social media. But then the kicker and what helped us to do more business was editing the content in real time and being able to push that out live. Now, of course, now that's kind of like, oh, everybody does that. But for them, it was what it did was help them to have their content out and so that people could share it in real time during the event. And it wasn't just like photos. This is them actually having videos and interviews like moments after they happen. So to Chris's point, just solving a problem. And and as Alex said earlier, just putting your unique spin on it can, the dividends are countless. Next question. David Brady in New York, New York writes in, Soundesk's Native Matrix versus Loopback's Noodle-based Patch Bay. Which is best? Chris? And we'll go to Alex. Yeah, I I think it depends. <laughs> so so I think that it's not, um, you know, the, uh, it, it, I don't think that they're equal. I think that Loopback gives you a visual way to manage your pipelines and do some pretty complex uh, busing uh, to make a lot of things possible, while SoundDesk gives you something that is much more like a mixer that allows you to wire that. I don't think that I would have one or the other. In fact, I've been using them mostly together, um, you know, so that I can see what I'm doing and build those I- that I.O. in loopback, deliver it to SoundDesk, and then deliver it back. Could I probably do it in the patch bay? Quite possibly. Um, but I think that I would want to be using loopback just because I use it in so many other places as well. So I don't think that I would, um, uh, I don't think I would pick one or the other. I think I would just pick both. And Bill? 
I just have to comment. When I read this question earlier, I wondered, does he mean noodle-based patch bay, which is what he wrote, or nodal-based patch bay? And it, unless I bring it up, I'm, it's never going to get it's, out of my brain. It's noodles, it's noodles and nodals. I mean, yeah, like, you noodle like we around call, with the nodes. We used to call we used to call them noodles when we were using shake. We'd have shake and we'd have uh, we'd we'd have the nodes, but we'd have the noodles. The noodle goes from here to here. Yeah, exactly. I love the term. It's a noodle so, noodle. I, I've got I'm to say, sorry Bill, about that. I, I lost my audio for a second. I realized you pro- were probably saying Fenwick, 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 it's your turn, Fenwick. Fenwick. No, just Fenwick. one time, and we went to Alex. Uh, Go ahead, um, Chris. <laughs> but I will say, uh, David Brady and I have been talking about this a lot lately, and I've, I, I, we're meaning to set up a, a chit-chat where I want him to explain the whole um, the, the Matrix router that's built into um, SoundDesk. I don't mind the noodles. The, by the way, the reason I couldn't hear you is I was trying to launch, <laughs> I was trying to launch, launch Loopback, and Zoom went bonkers when I did that. Um, I'm, but I am really enjoying the whole SoundDesk environment and being able to decide. You know, if if I if I press play on this video, y- you don't hear it. I can hear it, but you should. Oh, you may actually may not be able to hear. Can you hear that? We cannot. No, because because Loopback died. Hey, do you have the new? Uh, did you just install a new update to Zoom? Uh, don't you make us do it when we wake up in the morning? I don't think we. Well, it shouldn't be the newest one, and if it is, we should talk about it. Um, welcome, welcome, wake up, Fenwick. It's time to update your Zoom. This is Alex speaking. I don't, I don't think. Well, I don't. I haven't done it recently, so hopefully we'll t- we'll take a look at it. Because uh, the reason I say that is because I installed a new update to Zoom on Friday, and Loopback died. All of my audio routing just went. It says right here, update available. Should I do it? No, do not. Do I'm that. Do While it. we're on the air, Fenwick, um, please do that. <laughs> Go ahead. Do doing a it's demo. Right. Did he do it? Next He's question. He's gone. <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> I can't. All right. Uh, for the record, Bill called out the noodle nodal thing, and I decided that noodle was so much fun that I had to read it that way. <laughs> and, In support and, of you, 100%. Anyway, uh, Paul Terry Wall, who's from Austin, Texas, writes in, the Bing app on the iPhone claims full chat GPT v4 ability. Is this true? How does this work? Go ahead, Courtney. Yes, it works quite well, and it is true. You can see here in this tweet uh, from Yusuf Mehdi at Microsoft, we're happy to confirm the new Bing is running GPT-4, which we've customized for search. So Microsoft being a major shareholder in in OpenAI's software has been uh, uh, implementing this, working on it for quite some time to implement uh, 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 the Bing search engine with uh, AI from GPT-4, which they're now using the latest version, and they had access to it before anyone else. So I think it's the only free way to uh, may, – maybe the others have, have gotten a free way into GPT-4. Maybe it's available to the public. No, I guess not. Predator's shaking his head. No. So Go I think ahead. you have to have a subscription <laughs> to use GPT-4 right now. But Bing Search is free if you've signed up for the uh, preview, or it's, I think it's generally available now. John? There she blows on the iPhone. Just download Bing and it, with AI built in it. And the, the nice thing about it is it's got voice transcription built into it. So you can push the button and talk to it. And, and that's the way you're going to be able to talk to these guys in the future. And I guarantee you Apple Series coming soon with their AI built in. And Jason? 
I'll answer your question, which is how does it work? It's not on device. It's that simple. It's not on device. And of course it works because it's just a web interface. Next question. Tobias Moss from Minneapolis, Minnesota writes in, would you recommend running a house of worship's entire graphic design effort via Canva? What are the possible disadvantages? Alex? I think it could actually work quite well. I mean, I think that uh, there's a lot of things that are built into it. It's a great uh, overall app. Um, I've seen a lot of folks use it for everything from print to um, to their displays and everything else. So I think that Canva, especially because it's cross-platform, uh, could be actually a pretty good solution for that. I agree with what Alex said. And again, uh, just co-signing to the Canva Create that took place last week. Go ahead and watch that. There's just so much that they're doing with integration and the fact that you'll have that you have an ability to have teams. So then that way, from a productivity standpoint, you can track who's working on what and being able for like everyone to access it. I'm big on workflow. So just even setting those elements up, Canva is really doing a job where if someone comes in and they may be maybe entry level or intermediate, you can have like a senior designer who sets the brand guides and all they have to do is literally just pull that um, out of the, the branding element and it'll just help with the quality assurance for the project. So yes, definitely doable. Next question. Jack Rupel writes in from Breckenridge, Colorado. What has been the panel's experience acquiring a domain name? Alex? I think the most I've paid for a domain name or, or with a company uh, has been probably like $12,000 and some 5000 a bunch of them there are hundreds of dollars. It's never been worth it. It's never been worth it. There's so many URLs that are available. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like I look back on it and I just don't, I don't do it anymore. If there's something's available like that, you know, there's so many .ios and .it this and .that. And you think, well, someone else is going to copy it. But the reality is once you build a business on top of one that's close to the other one, it devalues that one unless someone's going to try to hack something. But you have to get really big to worry about that. And then you buy it. <laughs> you know, so because you it's not worth anything to anybody else after that. So uh, so I, I, I just have stopped doing it because I just feel like it's such a it's a money suck. And I'm, I, I, I'm not. Yeah. yeah. Jason. I've never paid a premium for a domain. I use Hover and my own creativity to get around having to pay for something else that someone else is squatting on. John? I bought and sold domains since 1988, so I'm an expert in this field. Um, Cedo, S-E-D-O dot com, are the lead, they're, the bro they're the best broker out there. GoDaddy has a, an auction site as well. That's, that's okay. It's not as good as Cedo. But for acquiring domains, Cedo's the best, the best out there. They have a they have an escrow service that the, the funds flow into so that, that that it's secured, the money is secured until the domain is transferred. Uh works out well. I've done several six-figure deals in domains. So what makes them better? Uh, they're the leaders in the marketplace and they've got the whole process of acquiring the domain name fully automated with the escrow service built in. And so you're not going to get a lot of people, a lot of people lose a lot of money on scams out there. Um, and so going through somebody like Cedo or GoDaddy, they've got third party escrow services for the funds to clear to make sure that the domain's transferred and the funds are sent to the uh, to the seller. Copy that. Courtney? Yeah, back in the early days before the uh, domain name squatters and leeches that brokers that, you know, got into the business of buying up every possible convolution of every possible number number letter combination and squatting on them and marking them up, you used to be able to buy a domain, you know, get a domain name registered for about 35 bucks. 
back then, uh, our local uh, uh, local 695, the sound local of uh, IETSC, bought 695.com. And uh, we had that on our website for a while. And then we realized that that domain, because it's a three-numbered domain, was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> so we changed our, locals na- our, our domain name to local695.com, sold off 695.com to some Chinese broker for $250,000. And it financed the union for quite a while. Uh, so, and I was able to, you know, I found getting domain names easy back when com was com or edu or gov were the only three uh, top level domains available. But now that they've opened them up to dot biz dot global dot everything else, uh, they're less of a commodity than they used to be. So uh, there's lots of choices out there. Although you do run the risk of being confused if you have a have to get a dot biz domain and somebody else has the dot com domain. Another suggestion for you, since we've got lots of time, uh, the uh, if you're going to go into business with a domain name that is registered to your business, is register the trademark for the first part of the domain. Uh, because if you register that uh, name, like I have CompuPrompt.com registered as a registered trademark, if you get it as a registered trademark, you can prevent anybody else from using that domain uh, in the same business. So... Uh, it becomes a good good way to protect your business internationally, because somebody else can't uh, come in and come in with a .biz or a .e you know .net with that same first part of the domain, because you can sue them for trademark infringement. Good call. Next question. Alexander Knight from Vancouver, BC, Canada, and right here on the panel writes in: Has anyone here seen unwanted reflections using ProMist filters? From one particular angle on a Lumix G7, the IKEA string lights behind subject were causing some unwanted reflections. Guess they don't work well in every scenario. Go ahead, Alexander. Yeah, I was going to see if I could cut to this camera with it because I've got it here. And I don't know if it's going to, if you can really see that or if it's going to show up on Zoom. (laughs) Yeah, it's showing up big time. You got dancing lines. So you can see... um, I don't know if I can, oh, I don't have the uh, clean HDMI camera out, but no, that's not going to be helpful. Anyways, um, yeah, it was showing up just in the corner. Uh, I could see these, just these little orange dots, and I took, I thought there was something wrong, and I took the filter off, and then it just completely went away. So I'm not sure if there's any solution to it other than trying to change angles or just not using the filter at all, but I've got that same Tiffin ProMist filter on this camera, you know, and I don't have those issues, so I figured it's just got to be the angle, I guess. Alex? Yeah, you're starting to see why people use matte boxes. <laughs> so, so, so matte boxes allow you to, when you put them in front of your camera, you're, it, it allows you to do a lot of control of any kind of light that's coming in from different angles. Now, this may be something else that's some kind of, you're, you're just seeing a, a refraction that, that might be related to that, but... But basically, um, a lot of times the reason matte boxes get used instead of just filters that are on the end of the end of the camera uh, is that you the matte box you can slide things in and out. You can have gradients, you can have promist, you can have anything else you want, as well as have you you tend to have a way to control how the light is entering um, through that. And so that's that's why you see those. And a lot of people are like, why do they use that when you can just put it on a lens? That's one of the reasons. Jason, Alexander, I'm curious. Do you have a lens skirt with that particular lens? 
a lens skirt. I'm not familiar. That's with what that I call it. It's you know, it's the thing that goes on the end of the lens that is basically a matte box that you know typically comes with a decent lens. No, I would I would start with that. See if one's made for the lens, and before you spend any money, just get your hands and you know do do you know the the poor man's matte box and see if you can figure out where the artifact is coming from. And if you, if you could figure that out, could uh, yeah, hood by the way. Most people call it a hood. I, I, okay. You know, I, yeah. That's what I yeah. was wondering. I was like, is he talking Look, about hood. the hood? No, yes, of lens course hood. he's talking. Yes, I'm talking about a lens hood. Um, you know, it's a, it's a boring I, person that can, that can only refer to things by in one way. So I, I think that it's, a, it's, it's more creative. It's very creative. Yeah, yeah. Very a creative. hula skirt, all right? It's a yeah, hula exactly. skirt and it's great. Exactly. <laughs> Next question. Uh, uh, Robin Cutshaw from Atlanta, Georgia, Georgia writes in, do you use a headphone monitor jack on your X32 rack? Can you route different inputs and buses to it for monitoring? Jason? Well, I don't, I, I don't have the rack version. I have the, the producer version, which is there with the, the scribble strip and whatnot. And I, I, I believe the I believe the rack is exactly the same. And, and yes, the short answer is, yeah, you can route just about anything you want to it. Next question. Tobias Moss from Minneapolis, Minnesota writes, in in response to my synagogue's head of production streaming job ad, several applicants say they've already, uh, they're, they're ready to sunset their solo production company and take that steady opportunity. How does that response make you feel? Red flag? Alex? No, I don't think so. I, I think that, you know, a lot of people have their own businesses and sometimes they've they're tired of doing that. <laughs> like they're tired of, of trying to collect money. They're tired of doing the productions. They're tired of worrying about the next, uh, you know, you know, whatever the, what happens next. Uh, and, and they might be more interested in doing something that is what you're doing. And so I wouldn't worry too much about, about that. I think that what you don't want them to do is say they want to keep it open while they're working for you. That's going to be the thing that is going to be more problematic for you than to have them. You want them to close it if they're going to start working for you and just work for you. And in line with what Alex said, I think it's also just an overall, the workforce people, those that during just before 2020 and going out on their own and just burnout is very real. And people are looking for, okay, I just want to go in and punch the clock, which if that makes sense for them, that is so that they can have that quality of life and not have to um, have to handle all of that, all of the hats, because scaling a business is not not easy and people change their minds. And, and to be fair, it may not be that they just want to uh, punch the clock. They just may want to just, there's many people who just want to do the thing. They don't want to deal with the books. They don't want to deal with the marketing. They don't want to deal with, they just realized after doing it all themselves that they, they don't want to try to call clients and try to draw a business when things are slow. They don't want to do it. They just want to do, you know, audio video, or they just want to produce events and they want everything else to be some somebody else's problem. Um, so you can find people that it's not so much that they just want to do a nine to five job, but they, they really just want to focus on the thing that needs to get done. And I, and those are people that oftentimes are really, really great to have on your staff is, is people who don't want to do all the other things. Yeah. And that just even like not everyone wants to be that entrepreneur of like, this is my genius zone and I just want to do this and do great things. And again, the quality of life of their other being other things that they want to maybe attack or approach in their life. Next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois writes in looking for a lower cost camera top field monitor for SDI and HDMI. What size screen do you find most popular? Suggestions appreciated. 
Alex? You know, seven inches are pretty popular. It's still it's a little bit bigger than what you're going to see on your camera, but still compact. Uh, Ten inches also popular. Um, as far as looking at different, there's kind of you keep on scaling up as you go forward. So Feel World is probably the least expensive. Then Lilyput, and then you start getting into the Black Magic um, slash Atomos. Um, you know, monitor small, um, what is it, um, little small HD. So those are the, the small HD, Atomos, um, Blackmagic are in kind of the, the bigger area there. This kind of halfway between is Lilliput. Feel World is the, is the least, the most cost-effective ones that we've seen um, around. Bill? Also pay attention. I agree with everything Alex said, but also pay attention to the ecosystem that surrounds that small monitor, particularly if you're going to be doing field shooting. You want something that has a good ecosystem of uh, boxes and things like that, maybe even something that you can put your face right into. So if you're in sunny conditions outside, you can actually see the quality of a uh, signal coming into that and judge it for color and uh, focus and things like that. In fact, I probably take as many accessories for my field monitor into a field shoot as I do for any other aspect of uh, of my kit out there because if you're using that as the one confidence of what's coming into your camera, you know, and you can't use a big external monitor, the quality and flexibility of that on-camera monitor can be really important to getting good results in the field. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I'd look for, a five, as Alex said, a 5-inch to a 7-inch. The problem is for, for inexpensive ones, the, the Blackmagic makes a great 7-inch, 5-inch, and it has built-in scopes, but it's a recorder as well, and it also has um, SDI and HDMI in. Uh, so that's one advantage. The cheaper... Uh, uh, small HD monitors, the cheaper ones, it's like 400 bucks, only has uh, HDMI in. So that's a consideration. You don't want to be judging your, the quality of your signal on a 7-inch monitor because a lot of times they're not even full HD. They're, you know, or they're not even 1080p. They're 720p or sometimes even lower when you're in that size. And you want to get one that has high brightness. So you want a brightness level of... Uh, 800 nits or to 1,000 nits if you can, if you're going to be using them outdoor. Otherwise, you're going to have to stick your head in the hood to, to be able to see the image on the monitor. And since you're going to use it for framing, if you want to use it as a viewfinder on your monitor to frame the shot with, you want to be able to see it without having to put in your head or touch your head to the monitor itself with a hood. Go ahead, Alex. Hoodman makes makes great hoods uh, for uh, for those for those monitors to to be able to see them there. I will say that we bought a lot of five inch uh, monitors, and then we bought a lot of seven inch monitors, and then we the five inch monitors never got used again. <laughs> like like never went out ever. No one wanted them. They just they ended up in a box, you know. So the five inch are very popular, uh, but seven inch another little bit, of, especially ones that do have the a native resolution of 1080p, uh, even if they're 4K or whatever, they have a 10, at least 1080p in the in the thing makes a big difference in being able to see what you're looking at and mostly see focus. Uh, now, you d definitely don't want, you got to buy a monitor with focus assist, you know, in it, uh, built into it. Uh, focus assist, false color, and, you know, at least histogram is kind of table stakes for most of the stuff that we get. Um, and then most of those, we want them to be able to flip uh, for a variety of reasons. So, but, but, uh, but a lot of our, you know, the bigger, for most cam operators that we work with, the bigger monitor we give them, if we give them a 24 inch monitor they're, they're great you know like like you know the, the not so much for handheld but what we do a lot of stuff on on sticks so um but people want as much as much as they can see as possible next question douglas carmichael writes in could you see applications in our industry incorporating gpt4 to make user interfaces more natural alex 
I think you're absolutely going to be having conversations with, you know, I need that someone's already starting to show some stuff in Blender and some other places where they're going, give me a thousand objects, give me this, rotate them randomly, do this thing here. And, and it's stuff that as users, as someone who's done this for a long time, you look at it and you're like, oh my goodness, like how much time that would save to just be able to talk about things. And, and so there's still going to be things that you want to do by hand. But there are so many things that you're going to be able to just say, I just need this. I need this to look like this. I need this to look like this. And uh, it's going to greatly improve the the productivity of a 3D artist um, and and video artist and everything else. It's going to make a lot of those decisions. It's not going to replace people who are really good at what they do. It is going to probably replace people who are not very good at what they do or mediocre at what they do. Um, they should, I, you know, they should worry a lot. <laughs> so, so it's important uh, to keep on you know, refining your skill, uh, that's the cost, you know, of being in this industry now is that you can't stop. You have to spend some time every day learning and growing because you're not, you're going to have to keep up with folks that where the cost of living is lower as well as machines. And thank you so much to our producers for your questions and keep them coming as we get ready to transition to the next hour. But we'll keep going with these questions for now. <laughs> next question. Rajan Shandil in Los Angeles writes in thoughts on Apple entering the VR market with new glasses. What part of the use case am I missing that is enticing Apple to enter this rocky segment? Go ahead, Bill. I think it's in part R&D. I mean, I, everybody's been talking about them doing some sort of VR goggles and glasses for a long time. But just think about the fact that they have been obsessive about display technology since the earliest days of their computers. And with iPads and iPhones and the constant push they have to make those displays better and better retina displays and more and more and HDR signal uh, display more and more. I just think they have a lot of scientists and technologists who are really good at this. And so I'm sure at some point years back, they said, what about immersive? What are we going to do? Should we get ahead of this? We've already got teams in place that are they understand all the technology behind this. Whether or not it ever comes out in the street and actually makes a product, I'm still a little on the fence about that. I don't know whether a goggle-based 3D display or a, a virtual reality display will ever be a high enough volume product for Apple to be seriously, you know, more than just a, it's a thing that we want to do. But I could be wrong, and they could revolutionize the world with it. We'll have to wait and see. Alex? When Apple released the phone, didn't make any sense because there was already a lot of, there was a big phone market and Nokia was doing really well. Uh, and um, when Apple released the watch, the Swiss makers made a lot of fun of them. Uh, when Apple, like it just keeps on going, like, why would you do this? And everyone keeps on saying, why would Apple do this? And, and um, I think we should not underestimate the level of commitment Apple has made to this product. Um, whether it perfect when it comes out is unknown. I mean, if I look at the, my current Apple Watch and compare it to uh, what came out first, it's, it's a huge, huge jump. And so they need to start doing something and getting in front of people and getting responses. You can only do so much in the lab. Uh, the The rumor is, is that Apple has spent an enormous amount of not only money and time and development, but partnerships. I don't think we should assume that they're going to release this without much content. Um, I think that they, they probably have worked with thousands of companies to to do something to make this work. So I think that you're going to see something that comes out pretty quickly. I do think they're going to start at the top and make it expensive. Um, they just don't need everybody to do it right now. They're making plenty of money on an iPhone. So, you know, they can make it an aspirational device for years, you know, so it can be at three or $4,000 or $5,000, um, uh, you know, for the unit 
for a long time. You know, as they figure it out, they don't have to make it $500 or $1,000. People want them to, but they could, they, you know, as they don't need the money. <laughs> so, so they, you know, so they, they can do a lot of experimentation at a higher level in the same way that Microsoft did uh, with the HoloLens. Um, Microsoft had other problems with that, but, um, but I think that I, you know, I, I, the biggest usability problem with the, the headsets, in my opinion, is the, just the putting them on and off. So if you make them into something, you know, the problem with the with most of these, and especially the Oculus, is you put it on and there's configuration that's confusing. And and it and if Apple solves that where you can put it on like you're watching, if they only had a sports thing that they were streaming, like Major League Soccer. Oh, wait, they do. So if you were watching that and they wanted to do something during breaks or do something, being able to pick it up and have it immediately tied to either your phone or your Apple TV or, or other things like that and be able to show you something really cool from that space. Those are the kind of things that that haven't been possible right now because people don't have the all the integration, the entire hardware ecosystem that Apple has access to. So so I think that I think we should uh, you know and they've also been building, you know, the the ability to generate the content as well as the code base for 5 years now. Everyone else threw the thing the headset out first and then said, "Well, we'll backfill the ability to build content for it." And that was a huge error, <laughs> just massive error. Uh, it's, yeah, as you know, it just it, it was uh, you know. So what Apple's done is built this entire platform and entire foundation before they roll out the piece of hardware that they need to use that. Um, so I think that it's going to be a really interesting. I, I think that WWDC this year is going to be pretty, pretty interesting. Jason, for the first time since the original um, AR. Our VR goggles in 2000, help me out here, Alex. It was the first time in, in um, NAB where they were showing that scene of of, of, t- of a TV show. Remember, you well, could look all the way goggles, around. The first VR goggles I saw were in the late 90s. Okay. Silicon graphics. Yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm talking about more recently. I want to say it was um, mm. 2010 or 12 mm. or so. And um, since then, I haven't really played around with this at all. I put on some PSVR2 goggles that I, I pre-ordered from a long time ago, and the, the shift is staggering. The foveated rendering, which basically means it's going to tighten up wherever your, the foveum of your eye happens to be, has become surprisingly good. Is it perfect? No, but it's a $550 set of goggles. If, I, if, if Apple can do this even a little bit better, then they're going to drive the development, which will in turn drive the hype, which will in turn drive the demand for the stuff that they've already started doing years and years ago, like USDZ and the incredible ability to, to text 3D things. And I think the sky's the limit here. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I think uh, Apple started out with the idea of augmented reality and that they wanted to sell because they wanted to increase their gaming exposure because that's kind of a neat thing to add to gaming. And so they saw that kind of as a lucrative market and they brought it to fruition with the iOS apps that run on an iPad and an iPhone where you're holding your phone up and uh, uh, it's making stuff appear on the image that's on your phone that looks locked to the camera image that's coming in your phone. Then they thought... Okay, wouldn't it be great if we could make uh, glasses that look just like regular glasses and do the same thing? And then they realized as they got into the development of it of how hard that is. And because you not only have to track your head movement, uh, 
but you uh, also have to track your eyeball movement because your eyes move within your head and you can change your gaze and look in different directions uh, without moving your head at all. And so that makes augmented reality really difficult. So I think they either pivoted to virtual reality or a version of augmented reality that covers your eyes uh, completely and uses cameras, uh, stereo cameras on either side to create the image that it's displaying to your eyes so that they can do augmented reality. And I think that's the direction that they're going in. And then I think they're going to find that other than gaming, which I think they want to increase their exposure to the gaming market because uh, Apple has never had a really good foothold in that market. Um, they're trying to gain a little more of that market. So I think that's what they're trying to do with this. Uh, whether they'll have enough games, you know, port themselves over to that format it remains to be seen. But uh, as far as, as industrial applications, there's a very limited vertical market for those kind of things. Architectural walkthroughs and and uh, some, you know, jet engine repair. The stuff that um, Microsoft has dealt with with HoloLens. And, and even then, even then has become uh, uh, problematic. Their, their deal with the Army fell through. So hard to say if that that market is ever going to take off or they're ever going to find the application for augmented reality. And Chris? I, I don't know about the augmented reality technology and whether or not it'll be big or not. It might be as big as, you know, 3D TV or, or you know, 360 video. But I'll tell you, I think the reason why Apple is hesitating on releasing it too quickly, I like what you said, Alex, about if you put the headset out first and you don't have all the stuff behind it to make it work, you're going to be in a world of hurt. But when they figure out how to make these things switch between my phone and my computer seamlessly, I think that then they'll be ready to do the whole headset thing. You know, I mean, it's, it's because that's what, that's what you're saying. You're saying if you can just say, Oh, look, I'm on YouTube, bam. And now I'm augmented reality YouTube. Right. But let's face it, we can't even get these things to work all the time. There's, there's, I think Apple has to come up with their own Bluetooth. Bluetooth, I, I Bluetooth 7. There, yeah. I branded Thank it. You. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> Next question. Alexander Knight for Vancouver, BC, Canada. And here on the panel writes in, is there a matte box that accepts my existing circular filters in addition to the larger rectangular ones? Go ahead, Alex. Not that I know of. Like the, the rectangular ones are designed for the rectangular. The uh, circular ones are designed to put right on the end of your lens. I don't think that they, they go back and forth. And Bill? I agree. You know, it's just the geometry of this. If you look at a matte box, this is the smallest one I know of, the matte box, uh, the small rig mini matte box. You can see that the circle of the lens is just physically has to fit in because the angle of the shot out of the lens expands as a cone basically so you need the extra space to get a filter in front of that and the only way to make it small and round is to put it on the lens next question Rajan Shandil in Los Angeles writes in is there an office hours recommended teleprompter also can we add a teleprompter channel to discord Alex I we're probably not going to add any more channels to Discord anytime soon. <laughs> so so we're just, we've decided we've gone too far. So, so like we're, we're, we're on a 12-step program uh, right now. And first step is admitted we have a problem. And so we're going we're gonna to take a look did, at that. Did Keely say that? <laughs> no, no, Keely did not say that. But I, but I, I have, uh, she has given some, uh, some input that may, maybe, maybe. When it takes five away. minutes to read the Discord, 
problem. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that uh, uh, a lot of us use the some of the ICANN uh, teleprompters. Also, the prompter people uh, teleprompters are really popular within our uh, group. And I think that we're probably going to end up, um, a lot of homegrown ones are going to start coming up over the summer. Uh, so I, I don't think I'm going to get to doing production on those until then, but I'm going to start publishing designs as I work on them because I... I, I'm, I'm frustrated that they're that some of the larger ones are too expensive. <laughs> so, so anyway, so I'm going to solve that problem and then publish where I how I put it together. Next question, Jack Cannon from Phoenix, Arizona, writes in: What are the panel's favorite software-based switchers for Mac, Mimo Live, Ecam? What else is the is out there right now? Go ahead, John. Both Mimo Live and Ecamm are both great products. I think I think that Mimo I think that Ecamm's completely written on top of Metal. I'm not sure about Mimo if it's rewritten using Metal platform. Maybe Alex will know the answer to that. Uh, Mimo Live is a little bit more expensive than Ecamm, but they're both great products. And Alex, both great products. Uh, Ecamm is easier to use. Mimo Live is a little more scalable, so you'll be able to do more and, and more customization with Mimo Live. But Ecamm will be a lot easier from day one, and it's about half the cost I think per month. Well, thank you so much. We are now at the top of the hour when we transition into speaking about mindset and what it takes to be successful in whatever industry you are in. But it all begins with your mind. And we have guest coach Bryn Drescher with us here. Welcome, Bryn. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. All right. So just even in prepping for this and that, what is it, 70,000? We have 70,000 thoughts that go through our mind each day. And as much as we're a very tech, uh, tech community and all things digital, the most powerful tool that we have is, is ourselves and our minds. And we wanted to just, over the next hour, and producers, feel free to answer, submit your questions, really talk about what it takes to you know, get from point A to B, especially if you've done all the, the technical things that you can. But what are some of the elements that, that really hinder people from, from like getting that next, that next step to their next goal? If we can kind of start there of what, what it means to be, what mental performance really looks like. Yeah, obviously, since we're on a tech show, we need to talk about the tech aspects of mindset. Part of the issue is, is you guys are fact-based people. You look at numbers, you look at meters, you look at things that you can measure. So that's going to be your biggest challenge when it comes to mindset. Now, I can still give you facts, okay? Like Liberty already said, 50,000 thoughts, 50 to 70, you know, like most statistics are made up. So who the heck could measure how many thoughts you have in a day anyway? But it's somewhere around there, okay? Now, what's interesting about that is about average 80% of them are negative because the mind is designed to protect you. So that's just something to understand, not because something's wrong with you, not because you're just, you know, of course, your negative thoughts can go up based on your relation to your environment, the way that you process your thoughts. But in general, they're going to be more protective thoughts like that's danger. Uh, you're stepping outside of your comfort zone here. There, bad things can happen. Your mind's just wanting to protect you. So around 80% are going to be negative or perceived as negative, whatever that is. Then there's 95% are repetitive. So we're thinking the same thoughts every day in relation to our environment. So when you're talking about the first thing to sort of understand is that they're just thoughts. 
They don't actually, and please write this down, nothing has meaning except the meaning that you give it. So all thoughts are actually neutral. So there's nothing wrong with the way you're thinking. So that's the first thing is also just recognize that there's nothing wrong with you. You're working, you're perfectly functioning. You just have to understand that you're the one that's giving the meaning to the thoughts. So give yourself more helpful meaning to what you're thinking or just discard the thought as just like a cloud. You wouldn't think much about a cloud. So you need to have that same relation to your thoughts and even your feelings because typically it goes thoughts, feelings, actions. So I had a thought that nobody here likes what I'm saying. Then I have a feeling that, oh, what if they really don't like me and that I'm sad? And then all of a sudden, then I may change my actions. Maybe I stop talking or maybe I think you guys, I'm using my hands too much. I know I'm a hand user. So I have thoughts about my hands, right? So and then feelings about my hands and then maybe I stop using my hands, right? So it's something like that and just being aware of that process and understanding that the thought and the feeling actually has, I mean, it's there, it exists. It's not to be resisted or to be quelched. It's just to be observed and then to decide if you want to shift or pivot a new thought, a new feeling, and then a new action. And I think you said something really important there of just even walking us through that step. You know, we're we're workflow people here. So from the thought and that thought, igniting some sort of feeling which ultimately impacts how we show up. Is that accurate? Yes, 100%. So then you work with a lot of a lot of athletes, but then also a lot of people in business mm-hmm. and just people. What are some of the similarities that you see between helping a, an athlete which may, you know, they're ultimately want to play better on the field, on the court, right. but then others? What are some of the goals that they're looking to achieve? So one thing is reason why I choose athletes, entrepreneurs, business people is that you're all very driven. Okay. You have a very specific goal, which is obviously the athlete ultimately wants to perform well on the court, which then has to do with career longevity and then ultimately financial success, right? Similarly, if a business person performs well on in their business, then they will have the financial, you know, um, returns, but then also the, the longevity, right? Because we just want to be able to do something, do it well and do it long enough that someone pays us a considerable amount of money for a long period of time. So those things are in common, very driven, very much want to play outside the rules, not so much of necessarily wanting to be conventional, perhaps right? Especially when you pursue a career like entrepreneurship, you're looking to color outside the lines a little bit, right? You're looking to kind of be a leader. So those are the things. So what are some of the the traps? Getting too caught up in your career, getting too caught up in the numbers, getting too caught up in the financial outlay and results of your career. So those things of like how to separate and sort of, again, re-equate your relationship with those things so that you can have a better understanding of what's actually happening so that you're not so caught up on results, not so caught up on, you know, um, only the numbers, only the outlay versus the journey or who you are in the process of pursuing the career, success, finance, longevity, et cetera. How, and this, this might, might for you be obvious, but how does someone, like, when does someone come to realize, like, I need, 
I need help uh, or I need like I need to change my thinking. So I want to I want to talk about that word help, because obviously there's a difference between mindset and mental health. They are the same but different. OK, I know that sounds interesting to say, but often people think I only need this when it's a problem. So in other words, I have to be unwell to get better. And that is, I want to disconnect that belief in your mind. Everyone needs mindset support, okay? Obviously, as you all are tech support or back-end support or even front-end support for a wonderful broadcast, you're going to need a back-end person that's going to have a different output or um, perspective than you did in that situation, right? Because when I'm on air and I'm talking, I'm not looking at the meter as much. I'm not looking at the lighting. And so there's somebody that can adjust all that. That's why there's a cameraman instead of me running the camera, me running the sound, me doing all those things. So often when you have a situation where you notice you're coming up against the same thing everywhere, because how you do anything is how you do everything. And then it's just getting some outside perspective, some back end support, if you will, to help highlight some areas so that you can better focus and then make the suggestion. So if you find yourself repeating the same mistakes, um, coming up against the same blocks, no matter the different avenues, because sometimes people switch jobs, they'll switch employees, they'll switch whatever, but then they find the same. If you're finding the same circumstances with a different set of, you know, variables, then it's probably you. <laughs> so you may want to address that. And we had a, a question earlier during the show of just even people um, possibly like leaving, being an entrepreneur, running a production company, and then actually, you know what? I think it's time that I, I want to move on and I want to be inside of an organization where I could possibly, you know, do the thing that I I do well. How does someone... Um, make that make that shift from being a solo solo entity and I'm ad-libbing a little bit, little bit just because we don't have the full context of what that what kind of work that person does right. but when it's time to to make a decision to make a, a a shift for something that will be better for you is that one of those places where it's like okay this is this is where a coach could help me. I'm going back into the workforce. Like, what's the kind of work that someone should be doing to prepare themselves? Because those are two completely different worlds. Yeah. Well, the most important thing, and this goes uh, kind of goes to one of the main things I teach about, which is identity versus role. And so sometimes when I'm in the role of entrepreneur, I make the mistake, and this is the same thing if you're a player, position player on a, a field, right? I was playing right wing, and now they want to switch me to left back. That's a difficult transition for some athletes because they're like, I've always played from this perspective. So similarly for an entrepreneur or someone in a technical space, it's like, I've only known myself as this. So then when, when they switch, they find that they're sometimes have difficulty finding the magic because they knew themselves as powerful in that position. And then they switch positions and now they're like, even, you know, identities, like you said, entrepreneur to back to employee or the other way around switching from employee to entrepreneur. So a lot of times what people find is they're, they're like, I, well, I don't know, I could do it for my job, but I can't do it for myself or I could do it for myself, but I can't do it for my job, something like that. So that's where you have to separate and not over identify with the role as the magic was in the role versus the magic is in me. 
So the most important thing is the coach helps you sort of identify the artifacts or the characteristics or traits, whatever you want to call it, that have existed in you across all platforms, <laughs> parent, you know, uh, employee, spouse, friend, person, and then know how to plug that back into any role that you decide to occupy at any given time. And I see the panel, the panels beginning to raise their hands for questions. So thank you, panel. <laughs> I just want to ask you one more before yeah. before getting getting to them is I probably should have even asked this to begin with to just set the foundation of like what is mental performance? What is mindset? Because there's so many different definitions out there and how people determine that. Because I think that will also help our producers in the community to see how this conversation will impact them. Yeah. So when you hear the word, thank you for that question. When you hear the word performance, there's often the situation where people think physical, right? So I know I can lift weights to improve my strength. I can do drills to improve my speed, et cetera. So same thing with your job. I can go to a training and they can teach me how to work better the audio techniques or the lighting or the camera or, you know, whatever. However, what causes mental performance is the optimization of the performance of your mind, right? You have the most powerful computer on the planet. There isn't a computer more powerful than the brain. But most of us, even though we've heard the lie that we only use 10% of our brains, not true, um, we're, you know, the, we're, your brain is 100% functioning. If it didn't function at 100%, it would atrophy and die. So the thing is, is that we're just aware of about 10% of the functionality of our minds. So our job is to, when we're talking about mental performance, is to up that number as much as possible so that we can truly perform optimally in our lives. So that if you're feeling like life is against you, if you're feeling like things aren't working out, that's when you get a mindset coach because typically it's just perspective and the way that you're using this amazing machine that you have, this body, this mind, this spirit, all of those things. And so a mental performance coach, my job is to help the athlete, help the entrepreneur, help the business person just to have perform more optimally within the environment that they want to see the most success. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, how... How do you manage the fact that a lot of times the way you look at the world, the filters that you kind of look at the world through based on that self-preservation mm -hmm. tend to uh, infect the, what's happening? So you see what's happening, you make it mean something, you then drive that meaning back into what's happening, which then creates that, starts to turn a, an engine <laughs> that, right. no, that can so, either be good or bad, right? Right, exactly. So that's the thing, right? The neutrality, but like what you're talking about is going to take perspective. So one, you have to have awareness. We always start with awareness when we do my program, because most people just think that that's the way that it is. That's fact. The way I see the world is the way it is. But if I asked all of you for your opinion about the world that are just, I'm seeing on the screen right now, most of you would have a different perception of that same reality, right? So the key is to first become aware because it's not, you know, a lot of times people just say, oh, just flip your thoughts. That's a little bit later in the process. First, we just have to become aware of how we're seeing the world and then just become aware that we're really just coming up with a version based on our own perceptions. Then we can start to then look at the thoughts and then examine them versus just starting with just thought flipping because again, everything springs from who you are and how you are versus then just changing little things or sort of like it's sort of that symptom versus cause situation, if that helps, Alex. A lot of times I think about it, you know, there's some people that 
that I find myself, if I'm around them, I say very little because of the way that they're reacting. And then there's somebody else that I will literally, I had one a couple of weeks ago where I barely said anything. And then the next person I said, I just, <laughs> just talked for two hours about the same subject. One was two minutes and I realized I'm the same. I mean, I viewed it as I'm the same person, but who they were brought something out different from me mm. than the, you know, because of how they were just responding to what I was saying. And that really was, for me, was really interesting because I was thinking about, well, when do I do that in my world? <laughs> like, you know, to, to other people. Well, I, I, I'll give you a different, a slightly different perspective on that. Considering that we're talking first person point of view, right? From a camera angle, right? Because when you're talking, they put you on the screen. When I'm talking, they put me on the screen, right? Well, I want you to know that they didn't bring it out on you. It was your perception of them that then you gave yourself permission right. to show up differently versus the perception of the other person. I just want you to know that you're always the driver of your experience. It's never them. Your relationship to them, your perception of them, your idea of them then determines how you decide to respond or react as some of us are prone to do when stressed or whatever. But yeah, if we find somebody, we're like, I'm not vibing with that person. You can feel it. You shut yourself off. You give shorter answers, whatever. But it's your perception of that person based on something they said, did, or responded in a way that you found unfavorable, whereas someone else might be able to have a two-hour conversation with that person and someone else might feel. So it isn't so much that they brought it out of you. You gave yourself permission to be fully present in one situation, and you decided that that person didn't get access because of the way that they showed up in your right. perception. Mm -hmm. And using that as a, an example, because I think that, again, would just help walking through this, as Alex said, in in working on mindset or mental performance is, if, if this was a conversation like now and then months from now, is it could it be something where you, okay, so I'm working on giving myself more permission mm -hmm. in how, like how people being in certain rooms. So I, I develop, I, I find out what my angst are or what my, my triggers are so that I can show up better. Is that kind of like what, or do people come in with different, different needs? Well, I think what you said there is so key, the, the identifying my angst, my own concerns, my own, it, my own things that kind of stumble in the way. So like, for example, if I perceive this room as unfriendly, or if I perceive that the people here are above me, then I may, I'm going to interact with them differently. But if I can choose to always see things as a level playing field and that I'm always welcome wherever I go, then all of a sudden I change. You guys don't have to change. You don't have to make yourself less than. You don't have to, you know, quiet your expertise or talk differently. Although we often do ask like, well, it's because Harshid, Harshid, I'm sorry if I'm saying your name wrong, but if it's because Harshid is like nodding when I'm talking, it's unsettling to me. So I'm just not going to talk. Right. But Harshid is just being himself. He has no idea how his nodding of head is impacting me. By the way, this is just an example. It's not true, Harshid. Don't take it personally. All right. <laughs> um, but if he were, actually, I like when people nod their head because it's like, OK, I'm hitting. I'm making sense. But even that, that's my perception. He could just be nodding his head because he's like, I want to seem like I'm listening. 
Mm, yes, very powerful. So it, I have no idea what he's actually thinking, but I'm using the input from Harshid to make a decision about how I'm showing up. And either that's going to work for me or against me. So it's not Harshid's actions, which are his choice, and he has his own meaning behind why he's doing what he's doing versus how I'm perceiving it. So I'm saying you becoming aware of how you're perceiving your environment and then what you're, what actions you're taking based on that perception and whether those actions are helping you or hurting you in your efforts or aims to be more present on the calls, better speaker, whatever your goal is, that's going to be what's going to move the needle. So it isn't so much. So it's again, knowing thyself more than it is about how do I get to know Jason and John and Alex, if that makes sense? Speaking of Harshid, go ahead, Harshid. <laughs> it's a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. You. And yeah, so again, to go back to mindsets, uh, I'm, I don't have a really good vision, but it's a mindset that I have to come into this room, per se, and you know, make sure that I'm understanding everybody. But what are some recommendations for people that I could take to, from today's conversation that helps them you know, move along? Because you get into a job or you know how to do a job, but mm -hmm. other people might not see that same you know, uh, skill set because maybe you're blind, maybe you have hearing impairments or right. you have a cerebral palsy or whatever disability, you have other stuff that's happening. But it's always that mindset that you might have, but how do you reflect that back to change the mindset of your employer or, you know, the people around you, as you said, uh, coaching, that's starting to sound like a really mighty fine thing that I might need to get into. But, uh, you know, how do you change that mindset of the other person? So you don't change their mindset. I know that sounds like, wait, what do you mean? I don't change perspective their mindset. Perspective is probably a better word then. <laughs> What'd you say? Sorry. P perspective is probably a better word. Right. Then. No, no, it's okay. You can't really change their perspective either from a physical standpoint. So like, for example, Alex may be the head guy on this call. I don't know if he is. He just seems like kind of a HNIC kind of guy. So only Liberty knows what that means. So anyway, <laughs> if Alex comes in and he has that perception of me, then my first impact might be defense. Like, oh man, how do I prove myself to Alex? Probably the more that I attempt to prove myself to Alex, the more Alex is gonna reflect back to me all of my fears. So it's really important that you feel very confident in your abilities, but here's the second part that most people don't work on, that you believe other people have confidence in your abilities as well. So that your boss, your head person, your person you want to impress the most reflects that back to you. Any insecurities can will be reflected back to you. And then that's something you would be like, well, man, Alex is never supportive of me. He's always shooting down my ideas in meetings. But if I think Alex is gonna be that way, then Alex can only be that way. And I know that's a little high level for some people, but it's just getting to the place of what do I think all of other people think about me? That's where I want to start working as well. Not just on what I think about me, but what do I think other people think about me? And that's the part most people don't work on. They go, well, I think I'm pretty dope, but I feel like every time I go into a room, people don't give me a chance. Well, if I think that, then that's what you have to reflect back to me. And I know that's hard when you're saying, but no, Alex really did criticize me in a meeting. Alex, again, I've never been in a meeting with you probably a super lovely guy, super supportive. All right. Sometimes. Nobody write letters about Alex. Okay. 
<laughs> but the most important thing to realize is that I'm projecting onto Alex that Alex isn't going to be supportive of me. And then he's reflecting that back to me. So once you understand that because you have an, an impairment, right? If you are someone that has an impairment, whether it be hearing impaired, you're dyslexic, you know, um, you can't see well, whatever it is. Don't just say, listen, I have heightened other senses that allow that that I have a superpower because you probably have super hearing. You have super observational powers in other ways. So just other people see me as fully capable rather than I hope they don't think because I can't see, I don't have the same capability that they do. So it's more just taking yourself to task. There's no one to change but self. I know it's not as exciting, but it really does change the world's interaction with you when you start to really start to drive. What do I want people to think about me? How can I start to believe that myself? And then watch them eventually change their perspective without you having to have a conversation, if that makes sense. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Yes, it does. Go ahead, Jason. It sounds to me like what you're saying, perhaps a um, a precursor to to getting yourself to change your mind, mm -hmm. perhaps could be um, to stop letting people surprise you because it reminds you that you are in fact in control the entire time. Yep. And and the letting, you know, it, it's bearing the lead. It's the letting people surprise you that reminds you that it, you indeed are in control. How do you feel about that? No, 100%, Jason. That's the whole thing. You have to make, just like I said, everything's neutral. You got to make the way people talk to you neutral. You got to make the way people show up instead of like, oh, wow. So like, let's say, you know, we'll use somebody else so Alex doesn't feel picked on. Let's say Bill comes to the meeting and, you know, because it seems like Bill would do that. But no, I'm just kidding, Bill. I'm just joking. <laughs> I know it feels like, but let's say Bill comes to the meeting and he has some, you know, feedback that's not as, you know, I don't, I don't like it so much, but it's true, right? Well, my job is just to say, okay, well, like to again, take that step back to get that perspective instead of immediately being like, Bill's a jerk. You know, he didn't have to say it like that or in front of all these people, no one's going to believe in me. So, cause we then make a story. So there's the fact. And this is what happened, right? I call it the most boring announcer. Imagine if a game announcer just said, all right, so he's carrying the ball. Okay, now he's passing the ball. Okay, now there's been some tackle, right? You guys would not watch. <laughs> You'd be like, sound down, not interesting, right? They have to make some color commentary. They got to give you some stories on top of. He's really worked on his agility. You can see when he's making that cut to the right, whatever the case is, it makes it more exciting to listen to. But that, you know, sometimes you're like, when they say stuff, you're like, did the athlete actually think that? Or is that just the announcer's perspective, right? So it's the same thing for you. When Bill comes into the meeting, Bill said, how I then heard what Bill said and then put a story on top of it. Bill doesn't believe in me. Everyone in the room lost confidence in me because of Bill's confidence. I made that all up. Does that make sense? So yeah, you're right. Exactly. It's what I let happen based on that. So when that comment comes, it's more, how can I have an, an, an interaction with my environment without making it mean something that is opposed to me, but also not being surprised because, hey, if I know myself, then I shouldn't be surprised that Bill had some criticism because I'm always worried about what Bill thinks about me. So if Bill comes back and says something, I wouldn't be so surprised. So agreed, Jason. I, I don't know if that, if I, that answered your question, but yeah. If that's your expectation that somebody's going to be critical, is that it, that's coming from you, right? So yep. it, is you watching out for what am I? What's my perception of that person as exactly. opposed to what is that person actually behaving like? Exactly, because you can't. That's the thing. We think that we are. 
we don't realize the inner conversations are the worst, right? But we don't realize how much we're going, that person doesn't like me. They, you know, when they said that, like, you know, somebody cuts you off in traffic. You're like, I know they saw me. And, you know, you're off to the races. And it's like that guy probably, you know, like, you know, his kid drops something and he's trying to get it. And, you know, it had nothing to do with you, but we make it about us because we're our favorite subject, even though a lot of us are like, no, not me. I'm so selfless. Uh, not true. Most of us are very focused on self. Okay. Even in our selflessness, we do it because it makes us feel good and we want to feel like a good person. So yes, Bill, absolutely. Just being aware that I'm making a story up because I'm like, right now I have no idea what any of you are thinking. So I call it the fill in the blank method. So if I decide, oh, Bill thinks I'm rocking this. John's like so impressed. They've never had a guest like me before. Courtney's like, I wish I had a question to ask her because she's a genius. So I could say all that or I could just be like, Courtney's not asking a question because he's like, well, she doesn't know what she's talking about. John's like, are we done with this hour yet? Right. So I can come up with either one, but they're true to me based on how I feel about myself. Does that make sense? So it's just finding that way of like, how am I putting my own beliefs on that other person? Because I didn't, I'm not actually going to ask John after the call, John, what'd you think? And even if John says, Hey, it was great. I could still be like, I don't know if he was telling the truth. <laughs> you know and what I'm saying? So it really that doesn't you matter. It's interesting that you say that again in our, our production, our, our digital community, because many of us are storytellers in some yep. shape or form. Mm -hmm. So it's now, if to put a bow on just that idea, it's the stories now that we have to tell back to ourselves, the stories we're telling ourselves about the environment around us. Accurate? Yep, 100%. Just become a better story. Just make better stories. You're make, if you're going to make something up, make it work for you. <laughs> Go ahead, Alex. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I think that one of the things I'm, I'm curious about related to that is is really the how we approach um, trying to say, understand it, being able to read the room as well. So mm -hmm. being able to understand where we sit inside of that inside of that process. So right. there is a we want to, you know, project something, but sometimes that projection may not be useful either. Yes. So so like you know, there's you know, we were talking about football, you know, and the commentator and and listening yeah. to Tony Romo talk about something. I'm I'm super excited about it listening to the guy next to me at the football game who's never been on a field right. to say exactly how the quarterback should have done something while he's being chased by, you know, a bunch of people that are really, really big. I, my opinion of him, whether he reads that, whether he decides what I'm thinking or not, my right. opinion of him is he should really just stop talking. Right. And so, so the, um, so the, so, but, but he is projecting something out that he's confident about and it's not landing anywhere other than people just wishing he would stop talking. So how do we, when we talk about self-generating, how do yes. we get into that, that part of that process? Well, I think, um, so like, obviously, if we just take the example you gave, there, for the right audience, somebody wants to hear what he has to say. So that's important, right? So know your audience, right? So he's, you know, generally a quarterback, uh, what do they call it? A couch quarter? Uh, what, what do they call it? Guy in a diner is what we used to yeah, call it. Yeah, guy in a diner. Okay. <laughs> uh, but one of those, you know, like the, the, the couch quarterback, he's typically got an audience of like, yeah, right? We get really mad at our teams. We feel a certain type of way. But then there's occasionally a guy, you know, somebody who's actually listening to the game is like, can you shut up so I can hear this expert, right? So unfortunately, you can't please everybody. But no, first, what can you do best is one, know yourself. Do you want to be favorably um, received by your audience, right? So I say be authentic over attempting to pander. 
Okay. And I know that sounds counterintuitive when you're talking about, but like, you know, be authentic over pandering because you want to make sure that even if I'm going to say something that you don't agree with, I can, st- I can back it up versus like, how do I make all these guys happy? Right. But you do also want to be, you know, just not waxing poetic because you like the sound of your voice. So the, I think when you say it with the right intention, which is I want to connect with my audience. So think about your intention when speaking and know that your opinion of what I'm saying is not as important as the fact that I believe in what I'm saying and my intention is good and I'm knowing my audience. So if you have those three things, the authenticity, the intention, and the knowing, then you're going to most likely land with the most people in that subset. Will there be somebody that doesn't like you, thinks you're talking too loud, doesn't want to hear what you have to say? Yes. But I I don't think that, like when you're talking about the projection, yes, you are going to project out. But most likely, if you continue to work on always being favorable to audiences, eventually the guy next to you, if he were to work on that, you'd be like, well, this guy's got some really good things to say. I agree with him. Well, and, and I guess the question is, where does it come in to, to, to like dance with who you're talking to? You know, like, so being present and we we're talking about like, when we make these things mean things, but like yeah. I speak, I speak at a lot of events, I'm going to, you know, and, yes. and I, when I'm speaking there, I'm paying attention very intently to the audience. So I have a thing that I'm going to talk about, but how I get there really depends. Like I, you know, I pay attention to what I call blink rate. So if I see them, if I see them start to slow their blinking, it either means that I've gotten boring to what I make it mean right? is that I've, that I've gotten boring or I've given them too much information at one time. And so I will veer off and tell a joke or, or tell a story and I'll kind of go do something else and give everybody a moment right. and then I'll come back to whatever I was talking about. And so you'll see me kind of sit there and just, but I'm paying attention to like every single, not every single person in the room, but most of the ones that I can see very intently, which is actually why I like uh, Zoom better than a real room because I can see everybody much more clearly. you can clearly. see everybody, right, <laughs> exactly. exactly. I think, I think when uh, what you're talking about is that last word is the trust word. Trusting in yourself that what you, what decisions you're making, like one of my affirmations is I always know what to do, when to do it and how to do it. I always know what to say, when to say it and how to say it. So yes, the, in the key other word you said would be presence, being a hundred percent present. Cause obviously we've all gone on a stage. Those of us that have done speaking engagements, we had a whole thing planned and then we threw it out because we were like, this is not, this audience isn't, that's not the, the format. That's not the way that this particular audience. So I think it's being able to trust yourself to be present when you are present, then trusting yourself that whatever decision you make is going to be perfect versus second guessing and going, I want to throw this joke in, but is this the right time? Then the joke, you know, it's kind of like when I've done stand up comedy and somebody's like, tell me a joke. I'm like, it's not going to work. Like, you know, it's got to be in the flow of like what I'm doing. So finding that flow and that's what flow is all about. Obviously, when we're talking about performance, flow. And we've heard in terms of athletes, but all of you have flow moments throughout your day. Times where you're just not, you're not thinking about time. You're not thinking about what's next, what happened before. You're just present because you're just enjoying it. Like that two hour conversation you had, Alex. So that's the key is to, you know, have that presence in that moment to then trust whatever decision you make as of what you're observing is the right choice. So I think it's not so much I'm projecting onto the audience. Like, yeah, because I, I understand what you're saying. If I say I'm projecting out that they love me, I don't ever have to change what I'm doing. That doesn't, that's not what that means. But inspired action isn't necessarily like some kind of like 
ding noise of like this amazing moment of clarity. It's just something that you do so naturally that you don't even notice it, but it was the perfect thing. Right. So I think it's also just that like that, that trust word is so important and you learn to deeply trust yourself. But the best way to trust yourself is also to work on that presence. Am I being present versus am I thinking about what's the right move? Right. A quarterback, when he draws the play and then calls hike, he has his intended receiver, but he also has to be able to pivot in that moment and trust that the coverage wasn't good. So I also, I also have my tight end to still get yardage. So it's how do I then make that choice in that moment to trust that I made the best decision? Cause I got a split second to make that decision and I can't overthink it. And I just wanted to pull in some of the some of the comments, even though you already know, as you told us, that you're doing a great <laughs> job, that John says, I'm really liking this, actually. And Rajan says that in 20 minutes, he's already got 40 gems. So nice. <laughs> producers, go ahead and uh, continue the conversation in the chat, but then also submit your questions as we head into the questions. Jason? That's what Bill Davis did on the panel and from San Diego. Do you have any favorite techniques for interrupting a repeating cycle of negativity that can seem to feed on and reinforce itself? Yeah. So one of the um, one of the great things for that repeated cycle is one, you have to be aware of it. So you may have this repeated cycle, but then you kind of feel like you can't stop it. So a pattern interrupt one way is the breath coming back to the breath. Um, I know it seems like, yeah, but it's like you got to interrupt this because immediately some people go thought flipping, just inject positivity. That's called toxic positivity. That is not the way you don't want to just immediately go. It's sort of like trying to take your car from drive to reverse without going through neutral. It's just not healthy for the transmission if you'd like to keep that engine in your car. So <laughs> what what you want to do is you want to go ahead and just kind of Bring yourself to neutrality, which means drop the thoughts altogether if you can, and then go to your breath, okay, to give you some perspective, some presence. And then also just bring yourself present by narrating what you see around you. This is what they advise if you're having an anxiety or a panic attack. It's literally just like, hey, right now I see that I have my laptop, I've got a webcam, I'm sitting in a chair, um, there's a window to my left. It's just bringing myself to the present moment. Because sometimes when I'm in my thought, I'm just thinking, that's all I have is my thoughts. And so I'm kind of caught in that web. It's like, uh, for all you audio and technical people, it's when you're trying to untangle that cord. You guys know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> like, why is this so hard? <laughs> like, it shouldn't be that hard. All right, so if we can get to a place where we can just come to our breath, slower, deeper, okay? And then you want to kind of say, challenge the thought, like maybe the last negative thought was no one likes me, right? And then Byron Katie has a four-step process that I recommend you guys all look at. It's called the work, but you can just Google it. Byron Katie four-step process, okay? So in case I don't get these questions right, but the first one, is it true? Most likely you're going to say yes, because you believe your thoughts. You shouldn't believe your thoughts, but most of the time we do. So if some, no one likes me, yeah, no, no one likes me. No one even like asked me a question. Okay. All right. So then the next question usually it helps put that pattern interrupt in, which is, do you know for a fact that it's absolutely true? Usually the answer is going to be no. Cause it's like, well, I mean, I guess my mom likes me and I mean, I do have some friends, you know what I mean? So no, I can't say for a fact that no one likes me. Right. Then the next thing was, who would you be? What, you know, who would you be without that? Like, what, how does that thought make you feel? alone, like, you know, sad, whatever the case is. So now you're acknowledging the feelings. You're not trying to suppress them. You're just acknowledging them. 
And then the last one was, who would you be without that thought or what, you know, and then you would say, well, I would be more confident. I would be more present. I would be, you know, I would speak more. And then the last thing would be, uh, which I add, this is the fifth step. I don't know if this is her fifth step or if she has a fifth step, but it's just basically what's a better thought. People do like me or I'm, most people like me, something like that. That would be more favorable and that can help. But the breath is the most important thing and the coming present to the moment. So dropping the thoughts altogether and then come back to be able to do that process. But to go from one to the other, usually not possible. Courtney? Uh, yeah, I've never had this problem very much because I'd, I never have worked very much in a corporate environment. And maybe it's because I kind of think out of the box and yeah. kind of think uh, more, more creative and don't work well in a structured uh, environment. But in talking about a, a technique for interrupting repeating cycle, I, I know I have this problem in programming. A lot of times you'll come up with a, a bug or something in a program where you, you can't figure out how to, to create a, a subroutine that does a certain uh, thing and you get stuck on it and keep repeating it and looking at it and looking at it and looking at it. And I find if I step away and just uh, go into it, take a walk, uh, go into a yep. different environment, take a nap, uh, a lot of times the the idea will come, the solution will come if I'm not thinking about it. Yep. So I move my concentration away from the uh, task at hand to something else as a distraction, and it comes as, and the solution will come to me uh, like a... <laughs> Uh, like like a summer breeze, yeah. <laughs> it'll come, and, and then a solution will come. So I find that getting out of concentrating too much on a problem can uh, create a blockage or a block that prevents you from finding the solution to that problem. Yeah, go ahead, 100%, Bill. Hundred percent agree. And I just want to add one thing, which is if you ever wanted to, you forgot something and you were attempting to remember it. Typically, when you drop it all together, is when it comes to you when you're at the gas station after the car. Like, oh, John! <laughs> it's like, yeah, no one's around. You're screaming out loud because you're so excited you came to you. But yes, that over-efforting is typically the issue. So you want to make sure that you're always mindful of the fact that that just that making that space, which is what the breath is designed to do, the talk, the walking is designed to do, the nap is designed to do, is where the good stuff rushes in. That's so good. Bill? Yeah, I brought this up because I'm dealing with a family, the per peripheral family member who's going through a cycle of that. And I, it's interesting, you said I hadn't thought about the breathing thing, but I've actually said a few times, just take a deep breath and yeah. sit back and think of that. Occasionally, though, oh, I find when I've done that a few times, I get pushed back on even that little bit of stop telling me to relax. Right. <laughs> you know, it, when you really have one of those serious little loops and they can't get out of that, are there any things you can do or do you just have to back off and give yeah, it some Yeah, so time? when it comes to family members and other people, when we get a nice gem, we like to share. We're big sharers. Hey, everybody, I got this great tip. You, I can fix all your problems, particularly men. The masculine side of everyone, we like to fix, right? When we're in our masculine energy, we're fixers, okay? So we want to recognize that sometimes you just need to hold the space, okay? I know that sounds weird, but hold the space. If you listen to them and then you offer what helps you rather than what they should do, okay? So in other words, you just say, hey, wow, yeah, I can, I can, that sounds like that's really tough. I can imagine that would feel 
terrible. Like sometimes people just want to be heard. So also for those of you that are married, just asking your spouse, do you want advice or do you just want me to hold space? Um, because a lot of times we want to give advice and we don't have a very welcome audience and they're just, yeah, they've heard it all before. So you need to sort of give some sugar first and then maybe a little bit of medicine, right? So um, rather than going instantly for, I know exactly how to fix your problem because now they feel like you're just trying to manage it versus just hear them and they just want to vent. And I know you don't necessarily want to be a sounding board for negativity, um, so you can also choose your moments on whether you do that or not. But if you have the space, just empathize and then maybe just give some advice. You know, when I was going through something similar with this situation at work, I found taking a deep breath, um, you know, really helpful for me because I couldn't get out of it. I don't know if that would be helpful to you, but I just wanted to share that. And then they'll say, oh, yeah, I've heard it all before. You know, I don't know. And then you're just like, OK, well, hey, I, you know, I'm just wish you the best. So that's what I would recommend because I know we get really wrapped up in, I'm so positive, I'm learning all this stuff and they're not helping me. So knowing that is really helpful. Just like know that it's not personal. They just can't hear you from where they are. It's like they speak Chinese and you speak Japanese. We're not going to actually have communication at that moment. Can the same be said for like in the work environment? Because we do have a lot of people who manage teams or in organizations. Is that a recommendation of, first of all, finding out if they... Because, you know, there's there's performance reviews and all of that that takes place. Is it holding space for people? Well, like I don't want to get yelled at by any supervisors here. Like, I don't know if I care so much about what they want, you know. So I think it's more about delivery and knowing your employee. So picking those moments. So it's really a relational thing. And I would rather not, you know, give you like a blank. There's no one blanket way to handle anything. But I think because I used to be that kind of manager that was like, look, I work hard. You should work hard. I show up like this. You should show up like this. But I think the important thing as as a manager is know that it's a dialogue and not a monologue. And if you are managing people, getting to know that person and then being able to then say, like, because some some managers don't want to problem solve. They want to just tell. But then it could just be like, well, how do you like to would you like feedback? Um, how do you like your feedback more than anything than probably do you want feedback? So, you know, figuring that out so that you can pick those moments. Cause again, knowing thyself, trusting thyself and then make asking for understanding. Does that make sense? Is that helpful to you? Can you tell me back what I said so we can make sure we're on the same page? That type of stuff versus talking at someone and just expecting them because I'm a one way communicator that they understand. Copy that. Alex? Have you seen the YouTube video called It's Not About the Nail? I have 100% and sent it to so many people. I had to learn it myself. So <laughs> especially as a coach, like, how do I not give advice? You have to like strap me down and like, you know, put tape over my mouth. Like, mm, mm, yes. <laughs> so, yes, I, yeah. I'm still practicing. It's not about the nail, but I yeah. love that video. So all you men who haven't seen it or people, just people, anyone that likes to give advice, watch It's Not About the yeah, Nail. It's good. Next question. Yeah, but particularly men. Uh, Jeffrey Powers from Madison, Wisconsin writes in, how do you approach people that have issues, for example, depression, where medication is needed to regulate their day? Yes. Um, so I think it's important because I have some clients that, you know, I've had clients in the past that have maybe been working with a therapist, had that. So one clearly just always want to put out there, I'm not licensed. So I'm not, you know, my advice should be, you know, like as far as clinical wise is that now I've had people on my podcast that talk about that. And I want to be clear about a diagnosis, not being an identity. 
So sometimes people are like, oh, I got depression. So, or I got anxiety. So we kind of lean on that sort of as I don't have to work on myself. It's still a continuous journey. One, make peace that you're taking the medicine because some people don't like the medicine or feel like something's wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with you. If you need some sort of aid to find your way to a sense of normalcy, then that's perfectly fine. So make peace with that. But secondly, understanding that because they're, you know, being regulated by the medication and whatnot, we may have to go over something multiple times. It's still deprogramming, you know, so I'm not going to necessarily treat it that much differently until I notice your behavior in the way that you're being coached and how the output would be. And then I'm going to adjust. So again, I'm still learning you because you with depression is going to be different than that person with depression. So I think in general, just knowing that we may have to repeat things several times, we may have to work harder at the deprogramming, like where we start versus where we finish, that may be different. So I think it's on a case by case basis, but I certainly wouldn't say that a person with depression should be able to do it with medication or without medication. You know, it's more just like, hey, I this knowledge is going to help me and how I'm going to approach this particular treatment plan, if you will. Next question. Sky Gleason writes in, where does emotion fit into your coaching? So emotion is the feeling part. So when we talk thought and feeling. So emotions, I'm so glad you asked this because I, in fact, I was just looking at something this morning. Emotions are like the way that they were described to me that was the most helpful is um, you guys know the rumble strip on the side of the road when you start to veer into the on the shoulder. <laughs> so emotions are basically just kind of like those little signals, like this check engine light and whatever to let you know what's going on. So you want to listen to your you want to allow your emotions to come and not suppress them. A lot of people like to play whack-a-mole. I don't want to think that way. I don't want to feel that way. You need to allow them to come up and, you know, so if there's sadness there, but we never want to suffer our emotions, we can feel them, but not suffer them. So if I feel sadness, that's fine, but I don't have to then identify with sadness and then go down a loop and a rabbit hole. If I do, that's fine. But it's, and then what we do is I have my clients rank themselves on where they are on certain areas. And then we start to notice how quickly we're able to come back. So if we do have a day that we fall off, then maybe it takes, you know, we get back at a day. Then eventually we want it to be a couple of hours, then eventually a couple of minutes. So we want it, but the, but the emotions are to be felt because they're coming up to say that there's something back there that is being triggered. So it needs to be paid attention to. So they're really just warning signals not to be ignored or just to be dismissed, but to truly say, okay, wow, there's a lot of sadness coming up when I'm by myself. So then that mean, must mean I have a thought or a belief about what it is to be by yourself. So then we want to start working there. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, what are some useful techniques for moving beyond a negative influence in your life, like a parent whose messages have stuck with you? Yes. So uh, now I know I talked about everything comes from you, your perception, all of that, but sometimes you do need to move yourself out of a hostile environment. Obviously, if you were in an abusive situation, whether, and I'm not suggesting that they're saying that this person's abusive, but if there is something in your environment that you're finding difficult to overcome, then separating and removing yourself from that environment is usually best. If you can't remove yourself from the environment, then you need to be uh, like water and allow it to just be and not attempt to try to change it, okay? So if the parent is offering a lot of negative advice, you need to find a way to neutralize 
what they're saying and react less to it. So more just like be like water. Okay. That's, that's definitely something to think about. Find ways to sort of move through that interaction as smoothly as possible. And then we can process it later. Um, not with that person. Again, this is separate work because just like if you were to call me stupid right now, it wouldn't affect me because I don't think I'm stupid. If you said that I am a hand talking, loud, talk too much person, that might be a trigger for me because when I was a child, I was always told I was, you know, I talk too much or I'm this or I'm that, right? So there's a trigger there that I would need to address to neutralize that. But you can't tell me something that I know truth of myself, but I don't feel the need to defend it. If you call me stupid, I don't have to be like, well, who are you calling stupid? I'm just kind of like, okay. You know, so I think the the key is to one, remove yourself from that environment. If you do have a lot of negative influence around you, not necessarily this cutoff list where everybody's like, I'm getting this person out of my life and I'm never talking to them again. Obviously, if it's your parent, ultimately, you would like to have a nice relationship with them. But there may be times that you don't take their phone calls. If you're having a good moment and you're at work, maybe send that call to voicemail and then have that call on a different term. Right. Versus that feeling like I always have to answer when my mom calls. Right. Or I always have to answer because it's my dad or my uncle or my grandma. So you need to change your relationship with that environment and then, you know, like remove yourself from that environment or make certain boundaries and then change your relationship with that environment to then have different outcomes. Go ahead, Alex. And it's part of that, just giving people space to be who they are and yeah. just having it going. This is in not in, in a bad way, but but this is the way this person is. I'm OK with that. They're going yep. to be that way when they're around me. And I, I filter that. I don't make it mean something other than that that's how I interact with them because that's the way that, that's the way that, and and there's the danger of you, you put them in a box of this is the way they always are. And then they can't, they can't get out of that box with you. But, but the, but at the same time, you give them a space when it's done well, I guess you give them the space to to be the way that they're going to be. They're not going to, you know, they're, especially if you're the parents, they're probably not going to yeah. change much uh, in the rest of your life. And so figuring out how to, uh, you know, do that. I, you know, I have a great relationship with my parents, but my, my parents are a certain way. And I, yeah. I let them be that way. And I'm totally that's, fine I with think that. That's, that's so important, Alex. Like, um, you know, Wayne Dyer always tells a story about his in-laws. When he was alive, he would tell, he would get into an, a disagreement with his in-laws a lot because they had some outdated beliefs about maybe race or, you know, certain politics or whatever. So then he used to always combat them. But then eventually he just started listening to them and just saying, huh, I never thought about that way, which would be true. Okay. (laughs) And then eventually they stopped asserting their beliefs so much. And then there was actual dialogue because he stopped resisting it. What you resist persists. So yes, allowing that person to be themselves, but not putting them in a box, knowing they can change. But as you change your relationship with how you perceive them, they will change. But it's going to require you to first, right, sometimes remove yourself because you're reacting so much because you're just fighting against like, this is not who I want you to be. So yes, making your environment neutral is so important. But if you can't do that, removing, kind of going back to that breath and then coming back to where you can then just be like, hey. I love my mom and, you know, like, but not saying this is who she is, but this is who she, you know, this is, uh, this is where she's at right now. Right. And I was once, right. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. So one day maybe we change. Next question. John Snyder from Reno, Nevada writes in, what are two or three most common aha moments you see with your clients? Probably realizing how much they were causing their own (laughs) suffering. (laughs) and um, how much they weren't aware 
of what was happening in there, like how much they weren't aware of how easy it would be just to flip things. So um, those are the two things like some of my clients have said, literally, um, I've never been so aware in my life. Right. And so they're like, but it's like when, when you're aware of something, you can change it. So that's yeah, that and then just realizing how much it was them making it suffering and how they could just that easy switch in their mind just suddenly made everything so much easier. Suddenly they're not having these disagreements with their employees. They're not having these disagreements with their family. And they're like, wow, I don't have to. Now, the other aha is that you don't get to complain as much and they don't like that so much, right? Like It's like, now all of a sudden it's like, man, it's not even fun to complain anymore because I know it's me. <laughs> so that part is not as fun, but yeah. You're absolutely correct. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> yes. Jack Ruppel writes in from Breckenridge, Colorado. Do you have suggestions for a former insider, now an organizational and institutional pariah? Ooh, that's a, I'm going to probably need some more context for that question. Um, so in other words, he's, he used to be inside the industry and now he's kind of the guy on the outside, right? That's what it sounds like. Yes. Okay, got it. All right. So from that perspective, I would just say that one, you're a, you're probably like part of it. We get this joy of like, yeah, I'm, I'm like, you know, especially when we're outside of the box people, I'm not a joiner. I don't like structure. I'm like, people just, I'm a rebel. Right. But then also thinking that that is now going to make it harder for you to relate to people or people are going to not as. So I think it would be also changing your perception that by being on the outside or being up, even labeling yourself as a pariah. I'm not saying you don't have fact based data to support that you're a pariah, but now you have to make different, you know, any data can tell a different story based on who's perceiving it, right? Some people are supposed to drink wine when they're pregnant and some people aren't, right? Some people are a good drink of coffee is good. Some people say it's not. So it's more just like deciding that just because you're on the outside means that you're a pariah. So in other words, it's like, hey, they welcome my perspective. Um, they like my voice in this conversation. In fact, many people that are inside the organization welcome this because it helps make them better. And I know that would be a stretch because you're like, but they're not saying that. But remember, if I tell the story long enough, they'll reflect it to me. So I think it would be more um, to see your role as vital in helping the organization be better. And also not from a haughty sense of point, like they're lucky I'm saying this, but like more just like it's appreciated because the organizations always want to get better. Even if you're not seeing evidence, as I always say to my clients, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Ooh, I know. I see Sky writing some notes in the chat, so I know that one's coming soon, too. <laughs> Next question. Julian Meinold from Dortmund, Germany, writes in, How do you stay focused on a task when you try to be so aware of your own thoughts and interpretations? I could imagine this takes away a lot of your attention. Well, I think the thing is, is that it's not so much that you need to be, yes, there is a thing about presence, but presence means you're present. So if you're in the task, maybe that's not the time to be 100% thinking about all your thoughts and everything else. So, you know, it's more just like while I'm doing the task, sure, thoughts are going to be passing and I can choose which ones hook me. Right. And if I notice it's hooking me, then I can kind of but the, it's sort of like when you're doing breathing and then you're meditating and then you notice that you start thinking about whether you turn the iron off, then you come back to the breath. So it's the same thing is you're going to train yourself. Right. Uh, Jim Quick is famously quoted as saying there's no such thing as a good memory or a bad memory. There's only an untrained memory. I say the same thing with mind, focus, any word you want to put in there. 
There's no such thing as good focus or bad focus or good trained mind. It's more, did you train it? So in other words, I'm going to have to train it to be focused on this task because I have a tendency to get caught up in my thoughts. So more just like, okay, how, so then you start measuring how quickly you can come back to that same task. And then eventually you should notice those times get better versus like, I should be focused. I'm not focused. What's wrong with me? So what you're saying is, is really with some of your sports analogies, it's what we're doing in the off season, what we're doing in training with these thoughts so that at game time, we are, we're ready to go. You're able to just toss it away and be there. Right. The most athletes will tell you that there's less thinking going on on the field than you realize, because as Kobe said, I've executed that shot a thousand times in practice. So I'm just in go mode in the game. I'm not like thinking about, do I want to take this shot? I'm just playing. And for our last question of the hour. Douglas Carmichael wrapping us up with what are some techniques to help you get through those times when everything's just not right? (laughs) Yeah, so obviously knowing that uh, once again, it would be going back to there are some things that are right. So maybe not thinking that everything is going wrong. So folks, I would say gratitude would be number one. What are you grateful for? Even in the midst of this, that I'm noticing that, you know, I at least notice that things are going or I'm having these negative thoughts. So finding gratitude, cause I call it the gratitude ladder. That's why you can't really go from, you know, zero to 60. Cause you, you know, when people like, just don't be mad, be happy. And you're like, God, happiness feels like a thousand miles away. So then it's like, where can we just use gratitude to, climb up there and then focus on one thing in that particular situation that you would like to have an effect on and then see what, you know, so you can get a little dopamine of seeing like what changed. So I would say start with gratitude, you know, start with the breath, then gratitude. And then uh, one thing that you want to at least say, okay, well, what's one thing that I can make more right than was incorrect a few moments ago. But even labeling things as wrong or right is something I tell my clients to get away from that binary thinking. It's either this or this. So, you know, like probably there's more right going on than you realize. So that gratitude can help, but also just one small thing I can move the needle on to make myself feel like I do have an impact on my environment. So awesome, Bryn. Like, I wish you could see the chat and all the the comments that have been going off of just how this is impacting mood and just even perspective of how we're viewing ourselves. And I want to give you the space so that you can, any final thoughts or anything that you want to share on top of all the gems that you've provided for us in the past hour. Yeah, thank you. And I'm so glad that it's being well received Um, and not seeing the chat is even better because I didn't have any impact on what you guys were saying. Like literally I had no idea. So that's great. They keep it from me from a reason because they're like, she'll start to feel herself, then she'll lay back. She won't play as hard. So they wanted to keep my performance high. I understand. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, I would say that the most important thing is know that um, you are magic. In other words, you know, you're the magic key to everything. It's not someone else. And if there's someone else that you think is the magic, you put them there. So put yourself on that stage, since you guys call this the stage, put yourself on that stage as the star. Even if you're not the front person in front of the camera, whatever, in your life, you're always the magic. Okay. So there's no one else that can occupy that space unless you put them there. So if you don't, if you feel subject to them, take them off the pedestal and put yourself up there. Okay. Do you have anything, do you have anything to plug um, before you go? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to say that in just a second. I was just saying my final statements. Okay. So the big thing, sorry, because I know you guys are about to wrap up, was just that um, if you would like to work with me or just find out more, of course, you can go to my Instagram or my website. I'm at BrynDresser.com. I'm at BrynDresser on all the social media platforms. But to book a call with me, it's uh, winwithbryn.asme forward slash 30 minute session. If you'd like to, if you're interested in coaching and you would like to just do a free consultation, it's a free coaching call, no, no obligation, but it's a great way to kind of find out if this will be the right thing for you. That is awesome, Bryn. And again, thank you so much. And hopefully if someone can put that, and we'll put the link in Discord as well so that people can learn more. There's already people have been sharing your podcast in the chat as well. So thank you so much again, Bryn. So uh, we're all set up. We're all set up for some initial steps for yes. just getting success in our minds. So thank you, Bryn. Thank you and for Producers, thank you for all of your questions and your comments. And panel, again, thank you for without which we would not be able to be here and answering the questions. And our production team, thank you all so much. And to just let you know, tomorrow is we're going to be speaking about in the second hour, Fundamentals of Green Screen. And Alex will take us through that process. If you want to learn more about what's happening this week, you can head over to officehours.global. And I cannot forget the Taluk Traversal. We have traveled 445,000 miles. That's 73,319 um, 73, kilometers. That is more than 350 million bananas around the world. Thank you so much for watching. Again, head over to officehours.global and we'll see you soon. Bye, all Alex, actually, you had a banana for scale. That was amazing. Banana, banana for scale. It, it, we now have an imperial banana. So this is the banana. It's exactly eight inches long. Oh. So this is the this is the imperial banana. So we, we now know Copy that banana is going to be. Better get it bronzed. Oh, wait, that's going to mess with the scale. Turns out I got a... Fenwick sent me a whole bag of these. So I've got lots of fake... Method of... He's moving away from apple boxes to banana boxes. It's good. Totally counterintuitive to how we do the show. We whisper at the end. <laughs> this is... I know, yes. I was like, why are we whispering? Why are we whispering? <laughs> it's because we do. It's, it has no meaning. Exactly. It doesn't mean anything. Don't want to make like they're, they're weird. Sleep during the show. Don't, don't make it mean anything. Embrace our weirdness. That's the other thing I should say. All your advice comes back to bite you in the butt. <laughs> oh. Do you have a problem with me? Nothing 